Well, guys, I am really excited to be preaching tonight, continuing on our series, Redneck. And by looking around, uh, seeing what you guys are wearing, most of us are kind of redneck, wouldn't you say? Just a little bit. I think that in each of us, uh, we have this uh, deep-seated redneckism. I I can say stuff like that because I'm preaching about rednecks, so I don't have to use right grammar or real words. Um, (laughs) So tonight's message is called Camouflage, and some of you guys got the memo and are rocking your camo. And um, we're going to talk about the ways that God uses camouflage, because if there's one cardinal truth, uh, one thing that I know about rednecks is that rednecks love camouflage. Now, I have to admit that most of you guys are probably looking at me, looking at this guy with product in his hair, saying, that kid is not a redneck. Uh, How is he supposed to be preaching about um, rednecks? And I just want to say, while I'm not a redneck, I think that there are some people that I've learned from in the church, uh, people that I've learned from that I played football with in high school. Uh, So I've got a little uh, redneck deep down inside Uh, But just the whole concept of hunting and uh, the manly stuff of being a redneck, I'm just not really okay with. Uh, I have nothing against hunters, but I've had a few run-ins with uh, my car and small creatures, and that tore me up. So I can't imagine intentionally trying to kill an animal. But rednecks love camouflage. Uh, They camouflage their clothes, they camouflage their houses, their cars. I mean, they freaking put camouflage everywhere. Uh, But originally, camouflage was designed for a purpose. Um, Hunters would use camouflage, and even uh, army men would use camouflage to conceal themselves. Uh, Camouflage is a device or strategy of concealment. And while the statement that rednecks love camouflage might not be that profound to you tonight, my next statement probably will be, and that is, I believe that God loves camouflage. Now, some of you guys are probably sitting in here thinking, Blake, you're just trying to relate, you're stretching, come on now. Uh, But no, I truly believe that God loves camouflage. Uh, If you just look at nature... There are clear examples of how God created specific creatures with this innate ability to camouflage themselves. One, to protect themselves in nature, but two, so that they could hunt, so that they could wait till the optimal moment to attack their prey. Also, not just animals in nature, but he's designed you and me in such a way that we are camouflaged in our everyday life. Uh, There's tons of examples and stories all throughout Scripture where God camouflaged his people. Uh, The first story starts in Genesis, and it's a story about a guy named Joseph. Uh, Now, Joseph was one of 12 brothers, and he was what you call the family's favorite child. Uh, Every family has one, and my family, I'm the favorite child. Um, And like me, Joseph knew he was the favorite child. Uh, And because of this, he kind of walked around like he was the stuff um, and it, it made his brothers literally hate him. Uh, they despised him. He, he strutted around in this coat of many colors. And that seems kind of insignificant to us today, but the coat of many colors is important because when clothing and textiles had multiple colors in them, they were typically a lot more expensive and they took a lot more time to make. So basically it would be like me walking in here with my Versace clothes on, making fun of my brothers and sisters for wearing Walmart clothes. Uh, So that's kind of what he was doing. Um, And and his brothers literally despised him to the point that they decided, you know what, we're tired of it. We're going to kill him. Uh, And they they, they decided that maybe that was a little too redneck to kill Ken. Uh, So they decided that they were just going to throw him into a pit. 
And so while he was in the pit, the slave owners comes by, and they decide, you know what, let's make some money off of our brother. And they end up selling their brother to a man named Potiphar. And so this guy who was this family favorite, number one child, ends up from this high place in his family to this pit to becoming a slave. And him and Potiphar, they got along really well. Unfortunately, he got along better with Potiphar's wife. Uh, Potiphar's wife found him to be very attractive and made a pass at him one day. So much so that she ripped off his clothing and he went up to Potiphar and she made the claim that he attacked her. Uh, Short of the long, he ends up getting thrown into prison. While he's in prison, he meets up with the baker, the baker for the pharaoh. And the baker's having all of these really weird dreams. And God gives Joseph the ability to interpret his, his dreams. And so the baker gets out of prison and ends up talking to the pharaoh because the pharaoh's having all these wild dreams too. He says, you know what? You've got this guy in prison right now who knows how to interpret those dreams. And so the pharaoh pulls Joseph out of prison and he's so impressed by how he interpreted his dreams that he raises Joseph to a position of power to the second highest in all of Egypt, only second to himself. So we see this transition of this uh, family child favorite to pit, to slave, to second in command of all of Egypt. The famine comes that uh, Pharaoh dreamed about. And the cities come across the land to get their ration of food. And sure enough, his ten brothers come. And he's looking at them in the eye, now in a position of forgiveness. Now in a position to give grace and love and to show God's glory. Not only did he save the people of Egypt and of the the outskirts, but he saved his family on that day. You see, God camouflaged him to be in that position so that God might get his glory. Fast forward a little bit, and his family continued to populate. And the Canaanites were overruling Egypt. Um, They were populating so much that the Egyptians started to have a problem with it. And instead of just making an immigration policy or uh, requiring them to get their green cards or building some fence, they decided that they were just going to kill all of the babies. Uh, And so as they're doing this, this woman has a child and knows in her heart that this child has been called by God. She just knows that this child has a specific purpose, that God wants to use this baby. And so what she does is she builds a basket out of reeds. And she puts her baby in it, and she sends it down the Nile River. You know, that in itself is an act of faith, trusting that God might conceal this baby. Because the Nile River was dangerous. It was filled with animals and creatures and rough waters. Uh, And also guards or soldiers could see the basket and take it and kill the baby. So it was an act of faith. But sure enough, this basket comes floating down the Nile to the foot of the princess of Egypt. And she looks at this baby, and she cannot resist Moses' sweet smile. She decides that she's going to raise him in the palace. So Moses, this child who was meant to be put to death, is raised into royalty. Into his adult life, as he's walking through the town, he sees this Egyptian man brutally beating one of his own. And so in a moment of anger and rage, Moses kills the Egyptian man. He realizes that he had just committed murder, and he freaks out. And so he takes off and he hides in the wilderness for years until one day something very precarious happens. See, I can't even say precarious. Something very precarious happens and he runs into a burning bush. 
And that burning bush speaks to him, and it's, it's God. And he says, you know what? This is your moment. He says, you know what? I've concealed you. I've given you camouflage to put you in this place. And now it's time that you take it off. Now it's time that you go back and you lead my people home. And that's exactly what he did. He delivered the slaves from the hands of Pharaoh. Another story is one of my favorite girls in all of the Bible. And it's the story of Esther. Now, Esther was a very, very influential woman for one reason. Um, basically, what's happening, the way that she steps into the scene is that the king uh, is kind of having... Um, how many of you guys in the room have seen Shrek? So, a pretty good number. So, you guys know the part where Lord Farquaad, uh, the mirror is showing all of the different princesses. And he has the opportunity to pick which one he wants. And the guards are saying, pick three, my lord, pick three. You know that scene? Well, basically, this is what's happening right now. And all the guards are rooting for Esther because she's a babe. And the king looks at her and says, she's the one. Um, us rednecks would probably look at her and say, yeet, yeet. I mean... That's what she looked like. She was, she was good looking. Okay? And that's literally what my translation of the Bible says. Um, but she was a beautiful woman. And it comes to this time where the king puts out this decree. And the decree is that he's going to kill all the people in the land who are Jewish. And she, she looks at him and she says, Well, honey, unfortunately, you've got to start with me because those are my people. Those are my people. And he takes back the decree. I love the way that scripture words this. It says, for such a time as this. For such a time as this. God concealed her. God camouflaged her so she might be in a position of power for such a time as this to save God's people. For such a time as this. You know, so many times in our own life, we have those experiences where God is saying, for such a time as this, I prepared you for this. This is the moment that I want my glory to be revealed. And, and believe it or not, Jesus is the ultimate example of camouflage. I mean, Jesus, the God of the universe, the all-powerful, omniscient, omnipotent God who created everything in the form of a man. And not just a man. I mean, look at who his parents were. Uh, I call modern-day Mary a basic white chick, okay? She was probably this uh, 16-year-old girl with her yoga pants and her uh, pumpkin spice latte, okay? She, she was totally insignificant and basic. And then her, her, father, her husband, rather, and Jesus' father was nothing more than a blue-collar worker. It's like when you're driving through the neighborhood and you see that guy on the roof hammering down the shingles with his butt crack hanging out. I mean, that was Joseph, Okay? So two guys who, two people who were pretty insignificant in the community. And then when Jesus was born, he was born in Bethlehem. And Bethlehem is like a modern day Bellevue, okay? And then he was raised up in Nazareth, which is like Petersburg. So he's raised in this outskirts of town, in this area that's so lowly, that's so meek. And, you know, you've got to ask yourself, you know, this is the God of the universe. You would think that he would be coming in power and in grandeur, but he didn't. He didn't at all. Actually, the exact opposite. And then he lived his life for 30 years, preparing for a three-year ministry. Preparing and learning. And then when it was finally time for him to start his ministry, he called upon 12 men, the disciples. And at first they were like, well, who are you, man? 
And he said, I am the Son of God. I am the Messiah. And at first they didn't believe him. And so Jesus started showing little glimpses of himself. He was that hunter in the deer stand who started making a little noise, just enough to get people to look. Just enough so his disciples might see a little taste of who he truly was. And still, though, even up until the time where he was crucified on the cross, his disciples denied him, his disciples walked away, his disciples doubted. The God of the universe, Jesus. You see, God camouflaged him. God camouflaged him. Until that day when Jesus died on the cross. When Jesus died on the cross. But you see, when Jesus was pairing up the disciples and he was getting ready to send them out, when he was telling them what was going to happen and he was saying, this is what you need to proclaim and preach about my life, about my death and what that represents. And I'm coming back. And when he was talking to his disciples, he, he told them how to minister to people. And it's kind of interesting. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 16, this is what he said. He said, I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore, be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. So that first part tells me I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. He's telling you, get ready. He's saying, guys, get ready. Be prepared. But the next part is kind of confusing. It feels like uh, it's impossible to have both. Therefore, be as shrewd as snakes, but as innocent as doves. You know, we see snakes and the serpent in the garden as this evil thing representing the world and sin and brokenness. And then we see the dove as representing God and holiness and purity. And so when Jesus tells his disciples this, it's kind of confusing because you feel like this, there's this tension But I believe what Jesus was telling his disciples in this moment was this. Guys, be in the world, but not of it. Be in the world. Live your daily lives wherever you might be with the people who are sinning and stumbling just like you're going to. Live lives with people, real people, but be as innocent as doves. Pursue me every day. Pursue righteousness every day. Stay true to the gospel. Stay true to my word. And I think the reason that Jesus says this is because two things. The first thing is Jesus realized that healthy people don't go to the doctor. The sick do. And if the church, if the gospel message was to be spread, we had to go to sick people. We had to minister to people who were broken. We had to minister to people who didn't want to come to church. We had to take the church to them. And so that's that first part. Be as shrewd as snakes. Live your life in such a way that no matter where you are, you're positioned in a place to preach my gospel truth. But you see, he said that second part, be innocent as doves. Because if you're not that way, if you're not living that lifestyle, it's kind of that old saying, well, he can talk the talk, but he surely can't walk the walk. You know, I have this image in my head of of a hunter, and he decks himself out completely in camouflage, and he climbs up in his deer stand at four o'clock in the morning, And this prize-winning buck comes up right in front of him. And when he goes to shoot the buck, he realizes that he doesn't have a gun or a bow and arrow. He has nothing. He's completely unprepared. And the buck walks away, and he misses his opportunity. You see, the problem when we choose not to live that second part as innocent as doves, when that time comes, 
when that time comes for God to reveal us wherever we might be, wherever he might have placed us, and it comes time for us to minister to somebody, if we haven't been living according to God's word, living, pursuing righteousness, we're not prepared. We're not ready to reveal Jesus or be Jesus to somebody else. We're not ready for it. And even if we try, even if we find the words to speak, to proclaim Jesus' name, they're going to look at you and go, really? Because last weekend I saw you and you were more wasted than me. Really? Because you walk around with bitterness and anger and hate and if that's what your God encourages, I don't want to be a part of that. I don't want to be a part of that. You see, I think Jesus understood that without preparing ourselves, without pursuing righteousness, people weren't going to listen. You can't have one without the other. There's a man in the Bible who I feel like really understood this. And he's one of my favorite guys in all the Bible, and his name is Nehemiah. Now, Nehemiah had a crappy job, to say the least. Nehemiah was the cupbearer to the king. And so basically what that means is that every single drink that the king would want to have, Nehemiah took a sip first to make sure that it wasn't poisoned. And one day, Nehemiah is standing around, and he just looks sad. And the king looks over at Nehemiah, and they were pretty close. And he says, man, what's your problem? What's wrong with you? And Nehemiah is just like, man, my heart is breaking. My heart is breaking for my city. And I want you guys to try to put yourself in Nehemiah's shoes. And in order to do that, I want to explain the kind of pain that Nehemiah was feeling in this moment. Uh, imagine for a second that America was no longer a safe country. That terrorist groups like ISIS and uh, the Taliban and different groups started infiltrating our country. All of our coastal defenses were gone. There's bombs going off in the background. You walk out your door and it's nothing but gunfire and blood. You see children separated from their parents, crying without their clothes. I mean, just total depravity. Okay, that's what he was facing. That's what was weighing down his soul because he knew Jerusalem was in this bad state. And so he tells the king, he says, I'm just heartbroken. I'm heartbroken for my city. And the king says, you know what, Nehemiah, if, as long as you come back, go. Go to your city and take all the resources that you need. And so he goes, and he sees this depravity. He sees this brokenness in his town, in his city. And he says, you know what? If I do nothing else, if I do nothing else, I will build a wall around this city. I will rebuild a wall around this city so that the warlords and all these people that are just disgusting and despicable won't be able to come into my city. And that's exactly what he did. He, he slaved and worked and built this wall. And scripture says that Nehemiah was almost finished with the wall. That the only thing left was for him to hang up the gate and he would be finished. And it says that two men find out that this guy is helping rebuild the wall. And so they come up to him and their names are Sam Ballot and Tobiah. And they basically say to Nehemiah, hey man, why don't you come down off that wall? You know, they didn't have his best interest at heart. In fact, I believe that they wanted to kill him. And I love the way that Nehemiah responds to these two people. He looks at them and he says, I'm doing a good work. What would it profit me to get off this wall and come down with you? I am not getting off this wall. And you guys, 
you look at that story and you have to understand that in that moment, in that very moment, God pulled off the camouflage. God's glory was revealed because Nehemiah built that wall. He finished the wall and he protected his city. And God was honored and glorified. You see, he understood that without building the wall, without dedication, without discipline, that the big, glorious moment where the camouflage is pulled back and he has that opportunity to preach truth, to speak truth, it'd be worthless. It'd be pointless. You see, so many times, guys, I feel like in our life, we want the spectacular. We want God to show us the spectacular, the wow moments, the big things. I think because of that, it's, it's hard sometimes for us to just live our day-to-day lives as Christians. Uh, I know for me it is. I, I try and I do the right things and I feel like, well, okay, where's God? You know, you'd think that you'd show yourself by now a little bit more and you just continue to do these things and you feel like it's for what? But you see, even every story that we've talked about tonight, they aren't stories of spectacle. They're stories of people who God used, who leaned into the supernatural power of the Father who were able to get to a point where when those, those uh, camouflages were dropped, something spectacular happened. You see, without the supernatural, without the preparation, without the prep work, the spectacular never happens. You see, even Jesus' death on the cross. You know, people probably thought, if he's really the Son of God, why doesn't he just break the cross in half and shoot fire down on his enemies? I mean, he's supposed to be God, but he just died. See, that was supernatural, not spectacular. What was spectacular was three days later when he rose from the dead. When he rose from the dead and God got his glory. And God got his glory. So tonight I want to challenge you with two things as the band comes up. The first thing I want to challenge you is this. Would you identify in your life your camouflage ministry? You know, God has placed each and every single one of us in a particular spot Uh, For some of us, that's a student. We wear a backpack and earbuds, and we go to class. And maybe for you, instead of complaining about that subject that you hate or that teacher that you don't like, you look at that opportunity as your missionary field. You look at that as a chance to speak truth and be Jesus to a friend or to a teacher. You know, maybe the tables are turned and you are the teacher. You're a coach. You guys have the opportunity to speak truth into kids' lives every single day, to be an example and a light. That's your ministry. That's how God has camouflaged you. Would you use it? Maybe for you, you're a a suit and tie kind of guy. And it's going to take you breaking up an office feud or... You doing something when the boss wants you to do something underhanded, saying, you know what, I'm not going to be a part of that. For them to go, you know what, what's so different about you? You look like us, but you're surely not acting like us. You see, you have the opportunity then to say, well, guys, I have Jesus inside of me. Maybe for you, your ministry camouflage is that you're a brother or a sister or a mom or a dad. See, sometimes our greatest missions field is in our own home being an example and a light and speaking truth to our families. 
So that's the first part. Would you identify what your camouflage is? Would you identify where God has placed you to reveal his glory? But you see, my second challenge is this. Would you be like Nehemiah and start building that wall? Would you identify in your life that one thing I don't have to tell you what it is, but that thing that you know that if you just did that one thing, that your life would be so much better. Put down that first brick. You decide to close the computer. Brick. You decide to show love instead of hate. Brick. You decide to be patient in a situation. Brick. And you just continue to build this wall. And so when people look at you, they say, you know what, I've seen his life. There's something different about him. You know, he looks like me, he blends in, but he doesn't act like me. He surely doesn't act like me. What's your wall? Will you build it? Guys, there's going to be people like Sam Ballot and Tobiah. There's going to be things that try to own you, that whisper in your ear. That moment when you're all alone and you know that you can go down to the liquor store down the block and nobody probably would know. And that bottle saying, come on, you know you want it. That's where you say, you know what, I'm doing a good work and I'm not coming off this wall. I'm not coming off this wall. Or maybe you're in a relationship with somebody that you know is a bad relationship. And they continue to blow up your phone. They continue to harass you and emotionally abuse you and attack you. And you just say, you know what? I'm doing a good work. And I'm not coming off this wall. Maybe for you, you're holding on to bitterness and anger and resentment. And those are the voices that are keeping you from reconciling a relationship. Would you say, you know what? I'm going to reconcile this relationship because I am doing a good work and I am not coming off this wall. Whatever it is, would you be prepared for that moment where God pulls back his camouflage, where he reveals to you exactly where you are, how God wants to use you? Would you be prepared and ready to speak truth and ready to be Jesus to someone who desperately needs to see him? Would you pray with me? Dear God, I just want to thank you for tonight. And I want to thank you for the examples that you give us in Scripture about men and women who live lives that are supernatural, that lean into your strength and your goodness. And God, we know that life is hard and it's not easy and it's not just about one good decision and poof, our walls are going to be built. It's about dedication. It's about discipline. It's about seeking you every single day and leaning into who you are to your power and your might and your goodness and your love. God, thank you for extending that to each and every one of us. Lord, when I think about the cross, I'm blown away that when you died, you thought of me. I'm even more blown away at the fact that three days later, you conquered the grave. That I don't have to be afraid of death God, tonight I just ask that you would challenge our hearts, that you would push us to start building that wall brick by brick. God, I just pray that you would convict us, that we would look at ourselves exactly where we are and know what our camouflage ministry is, Lord. And that we would change our perspective 
that we wouldn't just look at these responsibilities and these places that you've put us as insignificant or unimportant, but we would see them as purposeful placement from a holy father. And God, when that day does come, when you want us to lift back the camouflage, when you want us to speak your truth, would you give us courage and strength to do so? God, when we walk out of this building, I don't want to forget tonight. Would you constantly remind us that we are all called for a purpose? Not just some, not just the pastors, but the teachers, the moms, the dads, the sisters, the brothers, the students. Blue collar, white collar, it doesn't matter. Wherever we are, God, remind us that we are called to preach your name and your truth. And the only way that works is if we're living according to your Bible, your word, and your Holy Spirit, God. God, forgive us when we fall, when we stumble. Thank you for your grace and your love and your mercy and your peace. We ask all these things in your precious name. Amen. Guys, the thing about building a wall is that it's not easy. Sometimes it takes sweat, pain, sacrifice. It makes you feel a little uncomfortable. You know, sometimes we think that one good decision and poof, our whole life is going to be better, but it's not like that. But you know what? You're not doing it alone. You got brothers and sisters who want to hold you up. They want to be there for you, encourage you. And you've got a God that's saying, you know what? Lean into me into my strength and my goodness and my love and my grace and my mercy and my power. That's what we have, guys. So I challenge you to build that wall tonight. I'm doing a good work. I'm not coming off the wall. Would you stand and sing and respond tonight? Maybe for you that's a giving offering, giving back to God what he's already blessed you with. Maybe for God that for you, rather, sorry, that's taking communion and remembering the cross that we talked about, remembering what Jesus has done. He thought of you when he was dying. We think of him tonight as we experience life. Maybe for you, you guys need to come down to this altar and just say, you know what, God, I need you. Help me build my wall. I've tried and I failed because I didn't rest in you. I rested in my own strength and in my own power. Would you fill me with your strength, your spirit, your power tonight? Whatever it is, I just encourage you to respond.